So we're uh, going to look today at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. We're almost uh, done with 2 Corinthians. And uh, <clears throat> this is Paul, um, uh, remember, writing to the church in Corinth before he comes uh, to visit them, to come to see them. And so um, he begins this uh, text uh, with a command and uh, speaks as well in it of uh, two things that he's praying for them and for us. So um, think about that as I read to you this morning. Second Corinthians 13, verses 5 through 10. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe and my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to uh, go spend some time with my dad and take him to the uh, doctor uh, and for a procedure uh, that he uh, had to have done at the doctor's office. And so uh, he was supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. So we got there, of course, at 7.30 and... Uh, where the doctor's office was open, that was really discouraging because, you know, 8 o'clock means 7.30. Don't you know that? Um, and so as we went in, finally, they let us in. They were going to register him, and uh, they handed him a tablet to register him. And uh, this is a man who's never owned a computer in his life and at 87 is not ever going to own a computer. Um, he has one of those... Uh, Phones with the letters on it about the size, the numbers are about the size of a quarter, each one of them. And so that's as technological as he wants to get. Thank you very much. So he handed me the tablet and his uh, Medicare card and his insurance card and his uh, list of medications and uh, said, would you take care of this for me? So I did. Yeah. And I trust me, you know, I work on computers and with a smartphone every day and I found it. Confusing. I didn't, I didn't really understand. So we, we got off to a great start. We went into the exam room. The nurse came in very gruff, brusque, uh, very direct. Mr. Shelby, take your clothes off and I'll be back in a minute to numb you up. And walked out of the room. Left us back there in the, in the examination room. And uh, of course my dad, you know, he's, he complies. He starts taking his clothes off. And um, one of the things this afforded me the opportunity, I don't know about you, but every time I go to the doctor and I'm in the exam room, you know, waiting between the time they take you in there and until uh, the doctor comes, I always want to know what's in those cabinets and drawers. <laughs> and I'm all, you know, I want to look at them, right, to see what's in there. And hopefully the doc won't walk in while I'm snooping around. So, you know, he's taking his clothes off and I'm like, good night, you know, I, I'm i got to find something to cover my dad up with, you know. And he looks at me and he says, you know, one thing about getting sick and old is, you know, you lose your dignity, don't you? And I'm like, not while I'm here. <laughs> that, didn't, that, didn't, 
that ain't going to happen. I'm going to cover you up with something, right? So I, I found this big paper thing, and like I'm like, Dad, here, you know, I put that on him, and he laid back on the table, and uh, things uh, went relatively smoothly after that. So e- examinations, getting examined, um, something that probably many of us uh, don't want to think a lot about, or uh, some of us probably think about it too much. Um, Paul begins this text today by telling us to examine ourselves. And uh, one of the things that is probably true for you this morning is uh, you think, well, you know, I don't, I don't really want to think a whole lot about how I've been or how I've done or what I've done, what I shouldn't have done, uh, what I shouldn't have thought, what I shouldn't have felt uh, in the last week or so. I don't really want to think about that. Um, or for some of us, we are compulsively thinking about that kind of stuff all the time. That's all we ever think about. And, and we are just, uh, guilt-ridden or just tortured all the time thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, and, and replaying all our interactions and going on and on and on and on and on. So, I don't know where you fall on the spectrum of examining yourself, but one of the things that we know that the New Testament speaks to us about a lot is the the need for us to have a healthy understanding and a healthy examination of ourselves. In fact, as we today, as we look at this text, we are preparing our our hearts not just to hear from God, uh, but to taste of him, right? Uh, To eat the bread and to drink the cup. And as we do that, one of the things that the scriptures tell us to do is is to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, to to check ourselves as as we do that, not in some sort of morbid way or or even in some sort of self-righteous way where we would say, you know, we're okay, but ultimately we do this to have a sense of the reality of who we are, the reality even even greater of that of who Jesus Christ is. And so this What Paul does in this text is he explains to us the necessity of examining ourselves, that we must do this, but he connects that with a couple of the things that he prays for us in the midst of that to help us to ultimately, as he says at the end of the text, that what he wants to see in us is our restoration, right? So, Scott, put put my notes up there. So, So in today's text, Paul urges an examination and tells the Corinthians and us what he prays for uh, them and that they would not, and what he's praying for is that they wouldn't do wrong, that they would be restored, built up, and not torn down. Now, remember, what Paul is doing is he has been dealing with his critics, he's been dealing with difficulties and all of these things in this church in Corinth that he planted. He has written this letter and it's preparing them for when he actually leaves where he is and goes there and he visits them. And he has a fear that the visit is not going to go well, that that it'll be rancorous, it'll be angry, uh, uh, that it'll be be difficult. But what he's doing in this text is something that is really profound. He is, in a way, expressing to these people, um, his critics, his authority, and, 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 but his authority is a pastoral authority. Now, now, one of the things that we have to come to grips with, one of the things that makes it hard for us to understand what Paul's been doing in, in 2 Corinthians is we live in a very different world in this church and in the American church than the world that uh, the New Testament church was in. We, uh, we like it nice 
We like nice, whatever that means to you. Nice, pleasant, easy, uh, moral. That's what we like. Uh, everybody dresses a certain way. They look a certain way. They behave a certain way. Uh, that sort of thing. The, the New Testament is not nice. And it's not written to nice people. And it's not about a nice church. Okay? The church in Corinth. What was the church in Corinth like? Well, one of the things that we note about it is, is that the people that, that he is writing to was full of divisions. Remember, he wrote in 1 Corinthians about there's one group that sits over here and they follow Paul. There's a group over here. They follow Peter. There's a group over here, the really spiritual ones. They follow Christ. Now, to say that is to set, to set yourself up as in divisions like, well, we're this kind of people, not those kind of people. And so even though they're in church together, they worship together, they don't have anything to do with each other because I follow this guy, they follow that guy, they're lame, we're not. Right? So, so there's, there's that. There was all sorts of strife and envy. We know that they got drunk at their communion services and there was all sorts of sexual immorality that was going on uh, in the church in Corinth. So, so this is a church. One of the things that you have to see is that, that this is a real church. That it is that, that, that Jesus died for those people, that the Spirit of God is there, and what Paul is trying to do is what he says at the end of this text, is to get them to come to grips with the reality of the work of Christ for them, so that they would be fully restored. So that they would have a sense of what it is that Jesus has done on their behalf, right? And so it's, it's, uh, it, and this is a very profound thing for us to see. Next, next slide, please, Scott. So, the, the, the thing that you have to see about this is, and one of the things that makes this hard for us to, to understand is, not only are these people not nice, right? Um, you gotta deal with who the Apostle Paul is as well. I was speaking with somebody a couple of weeks ago, and it was stunning to them that they would think that people in the church, people in Corinth, people who knew Paul, would think he was weak, think he was boring, think he was ineffective, right? Because we think, we, you know, we think of Paul like we probably would think of Billy Graham, right? Now, we're Protestants. We don't have saints, right? Uh, we don't have people storing up righteousness for us that we can tap into. We don't, we don't have people like that who are sinners like us but have achieved a certain level of righteousness that we, uh, uh, that we, you know, that we, that we can tap into. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm certain that Billy Graham would be really upset if you prayed to him. <laughs> I, I think he would. He should be. Right? Um, we kind of think of that people would have looked at Paul that way. That they would have thought of him as some sort of, you know, almost you know, almost godlike figure in some ways that they would have venerated him. Well, not at all. People thought he was boring, thought he was ineffective, thought he was weak, and uh, uh, they and they they talked about him like that all the time. And so here he is. What he's doing in this letter is he is using his authority as someone who uh, the Jesus Christ has appeared to, who someone who Jesus Christ has actually commissioned uh, to be his apostle, his ambassador to the whole Gentile world. He has immense authority. He has immense 
understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, and, and of what he's done. And so Paul's using this authority in a way to address what's going on in the church in Corinth. And what he says here is, is that first and foremost, he wants them to examine themselves. He wants them to look at themselves. Now, now what does that mean for us to examine ourselves? It, you know, there, there's all sorts of things that, 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 that could mean. For most of us, when we think about examining ourselves, we think about some sort of exercise in introspection, right? Where, where we check our, our, we think about the things that bother us, or maybe you think of some idea that you have a conscience and it's troubling you, or, or something like that. But it's not just introspection, but it's coming to grips with the fact that they need to remember, as he says in this text, that Jesus Christ lives in them corporately and individually. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, because what you would think he would do is, what you think he would say is, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, because you are a bunch of drunks, you're a bunch of lust buckets, you're a bunch of uh, gossips and slanderers. Examine yourselves, right? But that's not what he gets at. What he gets at is, he says, listen, you need to examine yourselves. You need to test yourselves because don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? This is what I told you from the very beginning. This is, this is at the heart of our gospel, that, that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. He's in you individually. He's in, the, in, in you as a church, corporately. And so the, the, the thing that he needs them to get at is not just simply changing their behavior or just coming to grips with the fact that they are, they're, they're, they're just very poor, uh, followers of Christ. He wants them to come to grips with this thing that they have forgotten that they belong to Jesus, that he is in them and that they are in him. They have forgotten the very heart of the gospel that, that Jesus didn't come into the world live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, and rise again so that he can stand apart from us and say, do better. Come on! Right? Rather, what he says to them is Jesus did this so that he would live in and among his people and that would be the engine of change. That would be the stimulus that would change them more and more into his image. That the presence of Christ, the union with Christ, that coming to grips with that and realizing that would be the thing that would change them. You see, that's, that's the thing. That's why he says, don't you realize that? Don't you remember that? Listen, Jesus is in you. You're in him. You belong to him. Right? So, so he wants them to kind of come back to this elemental, uh, uh, reality of, of what their identity is. And this is what is going to change the things that they examine about themselves. This recognition is the engine of change for every Christian. For every Christian. Because if the engine for change for you is simply, I need to do better, how is that even biblical? Everybody should do better. But if Jesus Christ is in me, and I am, in, I am in Him, that changes everything about me, and that challenges 
the way I think about myself, the way I think about my sin, and the way I examine myself. Next slide. So not only does he do that, not only does he challenge them to examine themselves, he, he connects that examination with some things that he prays for them. So you've you got to look at the intercession of Paul for the Corinthians, many of whom are his enemies. This is what's so profound about this. These people, many of these people despise him. They despise him. They think he's useless. They, they, they have no use for him at all. And yet, what do we see that he's doing? He's praying for them, right? He says, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may see, have seemed to have failed, right? So he prays that they not do wrong. Now, now this is, this word here for wrong and right that he uses in here are, are two very important words. They, in, in Greek, they're, they're exactly the same. The word for wrong and the, the word for right, they're exactly the same except for one letter and, and those words. And so what he's saying to them is, listen, I don't want you just to get along with me. I don't want you just to repent of the fact that you've gossiped about me. I'm shooting for something bigger. What I want to happen is, as you come to grips with the reality that Jesus is in you, that it would change everything about you, that you would turn from these things that are getting you off track, these these things that are uh, uh, in contrast and against, contrary to this identity of being in Christ and Christ being in you, and that you would ultimately be do, as he says here, what is right, what is good, ultimately, as he says, what would lead to your restoration, an evidence of your restoration, right? So not just that they get along with him, but that they repent and seek the effects of the living Christ in their lives and their fellowship. He wants not just a restoration of their fellowship with him, but a coming to completion in the work that Jesus has begun in them. If Jesus is in us, if he's at work in us, we have the certainty of his promise that he will bring to completion uh, the, the reality that, that he's begun in us. As we come to grips with the fact that we are united to him and that he is united to us, that is what begins to challenge us in our behavior and our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. It, it, it changes that to reflect more and more of who he is, to look more and more like him. Next slide, please, Scott. So one of the things that you have to see about this to get at this sense of the wonder and the joy of Jesus being in us, you have to come to grips with the effects that, that your sin has. So the effects of sin, my loss of communion with God, is demonstrated in my alienation from myself, from my environment, and in my relationships. And that's what's going on here. The fact is that they have a broken relationship with Paul, that they have a broken relationship uh, uh, within the church, the fact that they struggle with immorality, with drunkenness, and all of those sorts of things are indicators that things are off track, are indicators that things are broken and that something must happen. Something needs to change for them to understand and come to grips fully with the restoration that Jesus died to give them. So now this is this is one of the things that's probably true of us, just as it's true of the Corinthians, that you may have grown so used to this. Maybe you've grown used to it and you've made your peace with it, right? 
But Paul's not going to allow that. So what he calls on us to do is to do some self-examination to get at what is going on in my life. Now, here's here's a way to to, to think about some self-examination. Um, when uh, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, we have this great confrontation where God comes and begins to ask him questions. God comes down into the to the the serpent has tricked Eve. Eve ate the fruit she gave to her husband. He ate the fruit. God comes down into the garden, and he's walking in the garden at the cool of the day, and he says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you. I was afraid because I'm naked. And God says, who told you that you were naked? And what have you done? What have you done? Have you eaten of the fruit? I told you not to eat. Have you? Have you done this? Nothing like that question. Have you done this? Have you done it? Did you do that? So Adam very quickly says, God, you're right. I've, I've done a quick self-examination, and I understand that in my pride and in my self-sufficiency, I allowed my wife to be tempted and to fall into sin, and I fell with her. Will you forgive me? Isn't that great? <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that a great thing? Man, that's so good. God comes and says, hey, Adam, have you eaten of the fruit? Well, the woman you gave me, she gave me to eat. What else was I supposed to do? And by the way, who gave her to me in the first place? Really, God, you're responsible. Not just her. She's bad. But you might be worse because you gave her to me. A little blame shifting going on there. That's, that's not healthy self-examination. In case you were wondering, that's not what we're shooting for here, right? That's, 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 that's not what we want. Right. What what we want is the ability to stand firm in the understanding of who Jesus is, of what our standing is before him, so that we can do a healthy spiritual inventory and come out of the end of that, as Paul says here, in the joy of restoration. We sang earlier today uh, in the worship service, Psalm 51. Uh, that that Paul just or that uh, David makes this remarkable confession of his sin after confronted by the prophet Nathan, where he talks about his need for cleansing, his need for restoration. He's very bold and direct and bald, really, about the things that he confesses about himself, and that he ends in a place of restored relationship with God, restored relationship with other people, and and ultimately joy in the sense that. This God uh, forgives him, right? So how do we get at this? How, how do we, how do, we uh, do an examination that ultimately leads us to a place of joy and restoration? Well, here's some questions to ask. So the first question is, where is there disorder in my interior life? And what I mean by that is this. You 
experience within your heart, if you're a believer, your chronic sin, does it bother you? Do you ever have a sense where within yourself you say to yourself and you say about yourself, I believe in Jesus and I struggle consistently with this, that there's a gap, that there's a dis, uh, there's a disintegration between my identity as a follower of Christ and what actually happens, what I think about, what I say, sometimes what I do. Is, is there something, is there a disjunction there going on in your life? And, and, and the fact of the matter is that's, that's a worthwhile thing for us to examine. That's a worthwhile question for us to ask. Uh, that's what he, that's what Paul wants us to get at this morning. Rather than saying, you know, that, that, well, that, you know, to, to kind of blame shift these things away, but to come to grips with the fact that there are things about me that should change and that need to change. And that I see those and that I struggle uh, to come to grips with the fact uh, that, you know, this change, it's really slow. Next slide. So where is there disorder in your relational life? Now, this is one of the things, uh, one of the ways that most of us put away any sense of disorder in our relational life is because we think my relationships would be great if my roommate, my husband, my wife, my child, my boss, my neighbor were just X. If they would just do this, then everything would be fine. Rather than saying and looking at the reality of perhaps the reason why this relationship is broken, perhaps the reason why this relationship doesn't, doesn't work the way it's supposed to, just like Adam's now his relationship is broken with his wife, is because there might be some tiny issue just one percent of the problem might actually be mine and 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 that there might be something here that I need to come to grips with that I need to look at and I need to uh, acknowledge that this is true of me now here's the problem with that is one of the things I think for many of us we are uh, there's all sorts of ways you could describe what's going on in your life for many of you you would describe your spiritual life as stuck you're just stuck you're not really, you're not really, doesn't feel like you're really going backwards, but it doesn't really feel like you're, you're getting anywhere either. For many of you, your Christianity, your walk with Christ, your understanding of the gospel is joyless. For many of us, it is just simply life is so overwhelming, so hard, so difficult. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't have time to experience any kind of understanding of what's going on in, inside my life or inside my relationships. I'm simply managing. And as long as I can manage and, and meet my obligations and get to my appointments and get the people I love to their appointments and get everything handled, then it's okay. We're making it. But when you're honest, what you recognize about yourself is that there's not much in your life that's sweet. Maybe not a lot that's bitter, but there's not a lot of sweetness in it either. Simply, uh, or you have the fleeting momentary sweetness of, well, I managed that sin for a while. That was good. What, rather than the sweetness of communion, the sweetness of joy, the sweetness of satisfaction in the work of Christ for us. 
the great uh, Puritan Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You're not experiencing any sweetness in your relationship with Christ. Perhaps the reason for that is sin tastes pretty good. Or it seems okay. Or it doesn't seem that, uh, that difficult. But what Paul wants us to do, what, what the, what, what we're challenged to do as we come to the table today is to spend a period of time examining ourselves, to look at ourselves and to come to grips with the fact that that's wrong. <laughs> that's, that's, that, that is, that is, uh, as Paul says here, that he would pray that, that we wouldn't do wrong, rather that we would do right. That, you know what? That right there, that attitude, that thought, that approach to things, that, that word, that thing that I do, it's wrong. It's wrong. And it's killing me. But, but until I come to grips with the bitterness of that, until I see the ugliness of that, till I understand that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, how can that be true of me? The reality of the grace, the reality of the atoning work of Christ, the reality of his work in you will never be sweet. Jesus isn't sweet to you and I because something else is sweeter. Jesus isn't sweet to you and I because our sin does not taste better. And until we come to grips with the bitterness that's there, how will we experience the joy of the restoration that he's given us? Now, now for some of us, you know, you think, wow, you know, I don't like thinking about these things. I don't like talking about these things. Um, But Paul wants you to be restored. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy and the sweetness that Jesus died to give us. He's in us. And that's what moves us to wholeness. Because here's the thing. Even today, as you uh, may be resisting examining yourself, Jesus sees you. And just as Paul interceded for the church in Corinth, he intercedes for you. He prays for you. And just as Paul prayed for his enemies, Jesus Christ's intercession for you is sealed with his blood. Remember, the scriptures tell us that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If Jesus is in me and I am in him, There's no place I can go, no experience I can have, no temptation that can come my way, no struggle, no grief that can come my way that will ever, ever change that central identity about me. I have Christ and he has me. If that's true, then I can be free and bold to examine myself and experience as I do that. The joy of repenting, tasting the bitterness of the sin so that the overwhelming sweetness of the sacrifice of Christ will linger on my taste buds. Hear these words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through